Mai. Good morning. This is Judith Lay welcoming you to Manx Radio and to the podcast of this week's edition of At Your Service. Manx Radio. I think it'd be fair to say that we all love a good story. I know I certainly do, but I also like a good ending. The Bible is full of great stories, but I'm often left wondering, well, what happened next? And so, it seems, is Richard Littledale, because he joins us today with the start of a new occasional series thinking about what might have happened next. He'll also be talking about something that no one actually ever wants to talk about. And Richard will be joining me after our music. Today, a truly rousing version of the popular hymn, Christ is Made the Sure Foundation. This is the Southwestern Seminary Oratorio Chorus with Festival Brass.
Richard Littledale is a recently retired Baptist minister who now devotes his time to writing, teaching and broadcasting on BBC Radio 4 and on various UK local radio stations. He's my guest today, with the start of a new occasional series asking the question, what happened next? But first, we're going to talk about the questions that no one wants to ask and still fewer of us want to answer. We're talking about end of life, dealing well with death. And no matter how much others encourage or explain, when someone close to us is clearly reaching the end of their earthly life, we shy away, somehow feeling we're wishing them away, planning life without them. We find it so difficult to do the things that would actually be really helpful. Sadly, Richard Littledale knows at first hand all the agonies of making that final journey, as, just a few years ago, he lost his beloved wife, Fiona, to cancer. She was in her early 50s, and they'd been married for some 30 years. And maybe only people who have first-hand experience are in a position to talk about dealing well with death. Yes, I think also I'm aware that this is... A chronic problem in the United Kingdom. We don't know how to talk to each other about dying. The statistics of those who have not spoken to a partner or a spouse or a best friend before the end comes are alarming. And what happens is that afterwards you are left thinking, oh, if only we'd had this conversation, if only we'd had that one. I was involved some three years ago with a national campaign to get people talking about dying. And we launched into it quite lightly by saying, well, what what would your favourite last meal be? Because we can all talk about that. It might be fish and chips or, you know, chicken madras or something. But that was a way to start what is actually quite a difficult conversation and to encourage people to do so. So sometimes I've given people little postcards and they will have on one side five things I want to do before I die And on the other side, five things I want to be remembered for. And because we're not good at talking about these things, we need the triggers in order to help us. But I've never yet met anybody who regrets having that conversation. I've met plenty who regret not having it, but nobody's regretted having it. Do you think that it's sometimes better if the conversation is started by somebody who's not a family member? No, actually. I think it's got to be between you because I think otherwise you'll always be relying on the presence of that person to facilitate it. And what we need to do is to get over this enormous gulf of fear and reticence that we have about talking to the person to whom we really need to talk to about it. What would you suggest that people would consider as a way into this without without them feeling that you're trying to plan the future without them? Let, <laughs> let's get things sorted out yeah. now. How do you do it? I think sometimes you can do it by talking perhaps about a funeral you have both been at. We all hate anonymous funerals where it sounds as if the vicar, the priest, the pastor really didn't know the person concerned. That's probably because they didn't. I think you could start off talking about that and say, oh, wasn't that, you know, awful? How would you like it to be for you? And perhaps then that is a conversation that you can have. I I smile about it now, but I used to have a file on my phone called the Fripp file. Fripp being Fiona R.I.P. And she knew that it was there and I knew it was there. And every time we had a conversation 
about what was, of course, by then inevitable. I'd note it down, you know, as a song to be sung, or who was to arrange the flowers, or who was not to arrange the flowers. And that became then an easier way to have that conversation. And the other thing I suppose, almost by accident, I've mentioned there is that you start with the peripheries. It's quite easy to talk about, I'd like this song, but not that one. It's a lot harder to talk about, do I want to be resuscitated when the moment comes or not? But you can work your way towards that one. You start with the easier, less emotive topics, and then you can work your way towards the more difficult ones. And also, it's the stage before that, and this is possibly also something you've experienced at first hand. What is it that you want to do in the time that's left, if that makes you feel better? Do something you love. Because I think when people are chronically sick, they have a daily budget of energy. And if you overspend today, you'll pay for it tomorrow. But you can think about how you use that energy. So we had a lovely, lovely occupational therapist who came to us when Fiona was getting sicker and sicker, who said, don't waste energy climbing up and down the stairs. We'll get a stairlift. Don't waste energy standing up in the shower. We'll get a chair. Because she wanted to have the energy for the things she was enjoying. Nobody gets fun out of going up and down the stairs or having a shower. So don't let's make them costly. And nobody wants those conversations. But they can make life, especially when life is shorter, a whole lot easier. I did some work a little while ago for a charity that helps uh, with children who have life-limiting conditions. And their strapline is adding life to days when you can't add days to life. Now, you have said that the Sue Ryder nurses were an enormous support to you and to Fiona towards the end of her life. And you've retained that connection. You were very grateful for the support that they gave you personally after Fiona's death. And you've continued to work with them. It's good that you use your skills as a, a very competent communicator to go and give talks. Do you find that keeps the pain going, though, or is there a positivity that comes with doing that work? I can't detach from it, or I would be unable to talk about it, nor does it assuage the pain. I think it makes me feel as if I'm investing it. It is of great cost, this pain, but if I can feel that it is also being of some value, then it makes it easier to bear. But it definitely doesn't you know, assuage it or, or make it go away. People talk about stages of grieving. They tend to talk about it as if it's a neat process, and it isn't. It never goes away. It just gets different. So now, as we are encouraging people to live well by also considering how you want this period of life to end, find somebody that Mm. you can have that conversation with. Yes, yeah. And as I say, you could start with the very unemotive five things I'd like to do before I die a bucket list, people call it sometimes. Then you could move from that to five things for which I'd like to be remembered. And then from that you can move to, well, when it actually comes, how do you want the act of remembering you to take place? And then you can move on from there. And I think it's a case of finding practical ways to do this. I can remember to this day, an afternoon, probably three weeks before Fiona died, It was a sunny Sunday afternoon. The sunshine was slanting in through the windows. She was in bed because that was the only place she could be really by then. And we spent what was a surprisingly pleasant afternoon with her asking me to take things out of the cupboard 
and put them in gift bags and then she wrote labels on them for the people to whom she wanted them left. Because she was never going to be there to see them receive them. But she got tremendous pleasure out of writing, you know, with love from Fiona on the label. And it probably helped both of us because it helped me to face the inevitable. And it helped her to feel that she was passing something on. Now, from the outside, that probably sounds like a terrifying way to spend an afternoon. In fact, it was a very therapeutic way to spend an afternoon. Sometimes, when we are walking the final journey with somebody, we feel utter helplessness. We can't affect the outcome. And we feel this this almost paralysing helplessness because we want to, to change things and we can't. Yeah. But by finding things that draw us together... Yes, because that's one of the issues, isn't it, for carers. You know, whether you're a carer who lives with the person you're caring for or whether you go in once a day, you cannot change the downward spiral. And as a result of that, you feel exhausted and you feel useless and you beat yourself up. (laughs) If you can find an activity on which you can both cooperate, which has some kind of positive outcome, if not for both of you, then for one of you, you're already winning. You're already making progress. So finding those opportunities is tremendously valuable. It's a good thing to remember this song. It's a, the chorus is from Psalms, because all of us get a little bit lost in life. Sometimes we're lost when we're young, sometimes we're continually lost. But it's easy to lose your way, especially if life lasts a long time. I got a letter from a woman the other day. She handed it to me. It was kind of crumpled and... She said, my mother just passed away. She was in her 90s, and uh, I was her caregiver. I'm probably too old to feel this way, but I feel just a little bit lost. And I thought, well, I've known that feeling myself. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light. Unto my path. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And when I feel afraid and think I've lost my Jesus be my guide 
Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith and a song for all of us when we feel a little bit lost. And before that, Richard Littledale was sharing his thoughts based on his experience of dealing well with death. And now Richard brings us something, as we say, completely different. And this is the first of an occasional series entitled What Happened Next? The Bible is full of great stories. During his short time on earth, Jesus' way of teaching was to constantly tell stories, and the stories of his life are how we learn about the miracles he worked, healing people, raising them from the dead, feeding them, loving them, and offering them the fullness of an everlasting life. But it seems to Richard Littledale that the more he reads of the Bible accounts of Jesus' miracles, the more he wants to know what happened next. Let's start with this story from chapter 5 of St. Mark's Gospel. Jesus had met a man who seems to be possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. We're told that the possessed man lived among the tombs, howling and crying day and night, and no one could restrain him any more, although they tried with chains and shackles. When the possessed man saw Jesus, he ran to him, and Jesus drove the troublesome spirit out of him. This according to St Mark's Gospel, is what happens next. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. And that's where the Bible story ends, leaving Richard Littledale to wonder what happened next. Without really realising she had done it, 
she had kept his space. It was not a room. Nobody had a room in this tiny house. All the same, it was his corner. Look, there was the thinning pile of straw on which he had slept. A dent, still in the middle as if only just vacated. There was his cloak, the one with the hole in it where he had plunged his hand into the fire at the bidding of a voice which no one but him had ever heard. There was his little stick, gnarled head carved into a mocking face not unlike his own. Every week she would tend these objects as if curating a museum to his memory. She would shake the dust from the cloak, push the edges of the straw back into place and polish the face on the gnarled stick, shuddering a little at what had become of his. Of course, he wasn't that far away, down there among the tombstones at the water's edge, but it could have been another galaxy. When friends and neighbours had dragged him away to chain him there, she had not argued. The demons in his head had damaged the family outside it, and he had to go. All their lives were in danger if he stayed, and she knew it was so. All the same, there was a tenderness to this little act of repeated devotion. A homage to the man who once had been. Today, she had just finished for this week when there was a commotion outside. She could hear the scuffling of feet, the odd pail and broom knocked over in haste as people rushed to the edge of the dusty road. He's coming, he's coming, they cried and looked anxiously in her direction. By now, the children were gathered at her skirts, peering around her at all the excitement and commotion. She wondered whoever they were talking about. Was it some famous rabbi or even the man Jesus that everybody was talking about, she wondered. And then the crowd parted and he stood there. In his face was a kindness she had long since forgotten. Around the corners of his eyes was a smile which had once melted her heart. He looked upright and free and beautiful. When the children rushed towards their half-remembered daddy, she did not try to stop them. He was home. Thank you to my guest today, Richard Littledale, and he'll be back in a few weeks' time wondering about a hole in the roof. But right now, it's notice board time, and MGPTs are being served in Bride Church Hall today and tomorrow, from noon until 4pm each day, with proceeds divided between Bride Church and a local charity. Moving into the week now, and on Wednesday evening, the 30th, Glen Faber Chorale, conducted by Muriel Corkish, will be in concert in St Thomas's Church, just off the promenade, here in Douglas. 
The concert starts at a quarter to eight. Admission and light refreshments are free and there's a chance to give to a retiring collection if you wish. And don't forget, there's coffee and chat in St Thomas's every Friday morning from half past ten. And just a few more days to enjoy the flower tower at St Thomas's before it's taken down at the end of this month. On Thursday evening, there's another summer concert in St Catherine's Church in Port Erin. Starting at a quarter to eight with refreshments in the church hall afterwards, the music this week is provided by the Londu Male Voice Choir. And whilst admission is free, a little donation to the collection as you leave would be much appreciated. And also on Thursday evening, there's a festival of three choirs at the Centenary Centre in Peel. The choir from the Cathedral Isle of Man will be joined by the Harmony Choir from Bangalore in India, directed by Sandra Oberoi, and Peel's very own Gobbag Groove. It promises to be a really special evening. Tickets are £10 each and are available from the Centenary Centre website and from the usual ticket outlets around the island. The Festival of Choirs at the Peel Centenary Centre starts at half past seven this Thursday evening. Looking forward to next weekend and on Saturday the 2nd, Sulby is the venue for a tabletop, indoor boot, second-hand charity stalls fair. Call it whatever you wish, just don't miss it. It's in Selby Methodist Church on Selby Glen Crossroads next Saturday the 2nd from 10am to 2pm. Admission is a pound, which includes a mug of tea or coffee. There'll be bacon baps and sandwiches and homemade cakes to buy, along with a raffle, bric-a-brac, clothes, royal memorabilia, jigsaws, Manx books, handmade items and homegrown produce. Proceeds will be shared between the Church Alteration Project and Scripture Union Ministries Trust, working with young people in the north of the island. And also next Saturday, as it's the first Saturday of the month, it's the Glen May Craft Market, open from 11am to 4pm in Glen May Chapel and Community Centre. Homemade produce and handicrafts by local artists. It's free entry with homemade light lunches, bacon baps, tea, coffee and cakes on sale. Head to Glen May and look for the bunting and the banners. And finally, the Mariners' Choir start their new series of services next Sunday, September the 3rd, when they'll be in Bagaro Methodist Church for a service starting at half past six, at which Mr Nigel Cretney will preach, the soloist will be Mr Bill Corlett, and Mr Eric Kelly will be the organist. There'll be refreshments and community hymn singing after the service, as usual, and there is a warm welcome for everyone. And that's all that we have time for now. But I'll be back later in our virtual lounge tonight at nine o'clock with a mix of easy listening music, your requests and your dedications. And I'd love you to join me if you can. And so, till whenever we meet again, this is Judith saying thank you for listening and I wish you and those you love a blessed and peaceful week and a very good morning. Mm-hmm.